Tonight on the show, we venture to Venice, Italy to discuss the cinematic masterpiece that is Don't Look Now. My guest is David. This is Manic Movie Monday. Tonight on the show, I am so excited to talk about this movie with this person. Um, we're getting a little highbrow tonight, okay? So no hard bodies. This is absolutely an art film in a lot of ways. It is a thriller. It is one of the reasons it is in my top 10 films of all time. Horror, thriller, nonwithstanding. It is one of my favorite movies. I am super excited to be talking to David today about this. Welcome to the show, David. Erin, it's a it's a real pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's so awesome. So I have I gave you a list, and this was one of the ones that really spoke to you. So what is your background with Don't Look Now? You know, I first saw this, I think, when I was 16, and I kind of went in blind. I knew that it was a horror film. I knew that it, it was a more mature horror film. I didn't know too much more about it at the time. It was one of these things where if you had, uh, you know, I had cable, we, we, I came to cable television late. Uh, for some reason, our street didn't get it until I was about 13 or so. Mm. And at that point, uh, I began to have access to all the cinema that, that, that came across it. And Cinemax used to do these things where it's like, okay, we're going to have five. These are five top thrillers for the month. And I remember seeing clips for Don't Look Now. I was like, I don't know what this is, but it looks interesting. And uh, looking at the New York Times, we didn't have a TV guide. We had the New York Times in our house. And New York Times had a big star next to it saying, like, this is a good film. It's like, oh, okay, I will check this out. Wow. And so I taped it going in kind of blind. And... I'm watching this strange occult film and it's very adult and it's very mature and it's got all these dark themes and, and then you get to that ending and it's just, uh, what did I just watch? Like, <laughs> it is, it is still in all of the films that I have seen. It is 100% the most shocking ending I have ever seen in a movie. Um, it sticks with you. And we're we're definitely gonna you know spoiler alert guys there will be spoilers. Yeah. Um, I mean you can't not talk about don't look now and do the spoilers, but it that move that ending was just insane. I mean my boy my <laughs> boyfriend was just like what, and I said right like <laughs> now now you get to experience it. Um, that's so that's so interesting that you said that Cinemax used to do that because. I have a really um, distinct memory of when Cinemax would do the Vanguard Cinema. Yes. And, yes. And I remember would, that. Yeah. And they would be like Cinemax thrillers. These are the these are the five that we're going to show this month. And then they would do and they did the same thing for Friday After Dark, which is a totally different episode. I but that was <laughs> Right. But they did. But they did that. And I remember. Drive-in cinema, too. And the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, drive-in cinema. Oh, my God. I totally remember. And then um, whatever the horror one was. Or, right. Yeah. It was just it was so 
awesome. And man, that was back when Cinemax was just like hitting its stride and its programming direction was amazing. And we're not even going to talk about what Cinemax is like now. But at the time, that 80s, ooh, baby. And so when you said that that's the first experience you had knowing what Don't Look Now was, that is also my first experience. And I just figured that out because there we go. I remember seeing that that was a thing. I also remember my parents' adult friends talking about that movie in a way that was very, you know, intellectual and artistic, like very much like, oh, that movie is up here and you have to have the they were talking about love scenes in film, I think, in mm -hmm. which I mean, you know, probably seven at the time understand this conversation. <laughs> but I remember one of my mom's friends saying, Oh, well, you can't leave out that love scene because that love scene is pertinent to this to the plot. And I remember being a kid and thinking, wow, like what happens during that love scene, right? <laughs> Like, is the killer literally revealed during that love scene? And I remember thinking that and then just totally forgetting about it until I was well into my 20s and was laying on the couch one day and it was on. And I was like, I should probably watch this at this point, you know, and in the middle of the day, you know, like on an afternoon and it just blew me away. Um, you know, from from top to bottom, just just absolutely blew me away. And it became that movie, you know, where every time they come out with a 30th anniversary edition or whatever it is, it's like, I'm buying it. You yeah. know, I'm buying my physical media. I, I know that my reaction after I saw the film is that I, you know, I normally kept a, a library of films that I liked and didn't like. And I remember liking the film, but feeling like, I didn't ever want to really revisit it well, uh, at the time. Okay. Okay. Like, this is a really good, and of course, you know, 16 years old was like, this is like, wow, this is, this is heavy and dark. And I, I be miles. I, I don't know if I want to keep this one. And I, I didn't. And then, then it wasn't until about 10 years later that I revisited and said, this is a goddamn masterpiece. Like, oh yeah. I, 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 and it's, it's changed with my age. So yeah. I'm about to turn 43 and it had it hit, you know, as, as the kids are saying, it hits differently. Um, it does. It hits differently for me now as a woman of you know, of a certain age of mm -hmm. and and as a woman in a long term relationship. And there's it's just very different. It's a very different film than when I saw it in my 20s. And then when uh, Bravo did their 100 scariest moments in film or in horror, they did that ending as one of those moments. I think it was also included in Shudders, too. So. Uh -huh. Yeah. So so that's a lot of people's exposure to this film is is that scene. You know, it's like, oh, right. I had the ending ruined for me or, oh, I, I knew that the ending was, you know, the little person in the red coat. Um and I'm like, yeah, but you gotta experience it. Yeah, it's it's good lord. Is it when you first see it, it's just it just turns your head around completely. It's pretty, and, yeah, horrifying because you 
at at this point you are you know you're 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 headed to Mordor and you're going yeah. right back to the Shire, right? I mean, you're you're in one you're on one direction. You think that this is the the ghost of this person's this person's um you know dead child when in fact you know it is a serial killer who has been who has been murdering people. serial killer who has been going around <laughs> willy-nilly with yeah. a fucking straight razor i mean it's like, okay all right we we have we have we're, gotten we're, away we're, we're ahead of ourselves here <laughs> of ahead of ourselves okay so um i'm gonna do something very different i'm gonna ask you to tell the audience what the plot is like and essentially like if you had to elevator pitch it to someone how would you elevator pitch it donald sutherland and julie christie are a grieving couple who have just lost their daughter um on a essentially a work trip to venice italy where Donald Sutherland has a career restoring uh, old churches and architectural uh, uh, buildings. And while they're there uh, trying to salvage their marriage uh, from this awful tragedy, uh, they encounter two sisters, one of whom was blind, who are who are psychics at least one of them is who approach julie christie and tell her that their daughter is in the afterlife happy and with them and donald Sutherland doesn't believe them and as they go through the you know their marriage and try to rekindle that you know rekindle their marriage and live in venice they keep encountering these two sisters and julie christie becomes more and more convinced that there is someone you know that the daughter is trying to contact them and donald sutherland is more and more defiant about the fact that she's dead and not coming back and then um this is shit, a, a shit gets film. weird shit gets weird yeah it's a hard film to explain uh no, but in that's terms- perfect because- no perfect actually yeah. that is the perfect like plot synopsis of this movie it is about two grieving parents who yeah. ha- have ventured to venice um he's on a work trip and they are dealing with their grief in varying ways um donald sutherland is a a character who has basically thrown himself into his work almost immediately following the death of this child and And let's and let's discuss the fact that the the daughter drowned on this property yes so because water is going to be a massive motif in this film water is a is a motif in this film there's a lot of there's a lot of themes (laughs) And, um, and obviously, you know, when you were trying to recover from somebody drowning, you, you go to Venice, the most underwater right. city in you the world. You go to a place that is <laughs> literally sinking into the water. Um, right. It, it's, it's interesting that they had that. Now, have you read the source material by Daphne du Maurier that this is related to? I have not read it, although I'm aware that in the 
book, The Daughter Dies of Meningitis and not drowning. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, which which I thought was really interesting because I don't know much about that particular, uh, you know, ailment. Uh, but when I was reading about it and read that it was a it was a short story by Daphne du Maurier, um, yeah. you know, it was very it was very different. I didn't get a chance to like actually like do a deep dive into that. But I know that that's the the main difference between the two. And um, when they the opening of this movie, like we we talked about how this is the type of film where you could do a dissertation on sets of scenes not just the film itself that's a whole other story like this is this is the type of film that is um it's a piece of art very much so very um, much because not only do we have we, we we have a very limited cast so it's interesting because there's this limited cast of characters you know you've got john and laura you know, and you've got uh, the sisters and then you've got sort of these extra characters of the bishop and you've got, you know, the the inspector, um, inspector the hotel manager and the hotel manager and, and people like that. But for the most part, the characters um, are not only human, but they're also like the architecture of Venice. Um, the water is a character. The uh overwhelming sense of paranoia and dread that one experiences when they are in a foreign country that they sort of speak the language um enough to yes. be able to like get around right but they don't speak the language enough to be able to um they're not integrated into exactly yeah they're very much outsiders looking in and and yeah. the way they shoot Venice is, you know, they 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 tried for the most part to avoid any kind of cultural landmarks. You, you don't really see like, oh, here's the the main plaza, but it's not there, right? Um, right. The Grand Canal Bridge is is nowhere to be seen in this. It's it's all just this labyrinth of shadows and and alleyways and um, it, yeah, and it, it it's all crumbling and rotting. It, it's so atmospheric and gothic and eerie. And... Yeah, yeah, it it really there's a feeling of loss and a feeling of being lost in this movie, you know, because there's they're they're both very lost in their own ways um, with dealing with this grief. And whereas Donald Sutherland wants to throw himself into his work, Julie Christie is trying to understand and wrap her brain around it. And then in addition to that, she's trying to find other avenues to deal with her grief. Yeah. Um, she just, she just doesn't know what they are. Like that early moment when she goes to the church at the spur of the moment to light a candle. It, you know, it's all right. She's just know. doing like, she's just trying to do stuff that's different. And, and it's, it's the difference between these two characters because there's one character who's facing it and the other character who is denying it. Yeah. Basically. You know, or not necessarily denying that it happened, but denying their own feelings of loss and their own feelings of grief. And grief is such a tricky thing because it it doesn't follow a timeline. No. And 
neither does this film, which is right. That's another that is another wonderful uh, point is that time is not linear in this movie. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of flashbacks and then there are some flash forwards. Um, Mm -hmm. There's almost a like a premonition. There's visions. There's, there's, uh, you know, but it kind of lends to this feeling of unease. You know, this feeling of just as in the opening scene, Donald Sutherland even says nothing is as it seems. That's which true. Is, yeah, I mean, which which is funny because that took him apparently thirty takes to get right. I, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's the key motif. Like you said, it's the motif of the film. I mean, it's and you do have that that sort of wonderful, silly conversation they have about the, you know, how the girl asked about how if the world is round, how can frozen water, frozen lake, be flat? And right, and she's just like, well, trying to like not <laughs> trying to look up the information, and you can. The the house that they live in is very lived in, you yeah. know, it, it's very you can tell that that is, you know, that that is their home and that there's memories have been made there. Um, it's important to point out, unfortunately, this 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 one character gets shoved aside and I'm going to have to mention it, but they have another kid. They do have another kid whose only job is to get hurt and the bicycle. And hurt at school. This poor bastard. And, I mean, <laughs> and, and and without without giving away too much, there's a point where Julia Christie visits him at the school and said, "Do you want to say goodbye?" And she says, "No." And then <laughs> my mother was like, "Well, fuck that kid!" Like she just this couldn't man. believe it. Right? He's like, "Oh no, I'm I'm too concerned with whatever else is going on right now." It's like, "Oh, I saw I saw him earlier. I don't need to see him again. They don't need to see him again. He's fine. He had a big gat, you know, concussion, but you know, he's fine. Right. He got he got hit in the head during what they refer to as fire practice. And I had to ask my mom because I said, Were they firing like guns? And she goes, No, I think they mean like there was a fire drill at the school. And that yeah, is I how the that... child got hurt. It, it yeah, it's one of the aspects on on multiple rewatches that I picked up. Well, like, I I just on the most most recent rewatch that i found it's like this uh, they haven't this kid gets just shoved aside so <laughs> they leave for venice after the death of their child and and he goes to boarding school and i was asking i was saying well is that just because this was the 70s and this was something that was done in england like kids just went to boarding school or were these parents just like yeah i don't want to deal with that kid either like <laughs> i i i think the answer is yes <laughs> it's a variety of reasons i think i think if you were some you know people of a certain stature in england which and clearly looking at this house they are well off oh yeah <laughs> oh absolutely they are, I mean, Donald is very successful at his job right or at least somebody has old money or something but you know the the kid is yeah he goes to boarding school like, yeah go to boarding school class right it's just uh yeah, exactly. So they uh, they end up in Venice and they're having lunch where they encounter these two sisters, one of which gets something in her eye. And Julie Christie uh, volunteers to go and help her in the bathroom. So this is kind of like a, a nod to her character being the type of character who would help another person who didn't know another person, but would actually go and actually help them. Um, it's kind of 
it, there's a little bit of a juxtaposition there with their characters because Donald Sutherland seems to just be someone who's just like, yeah, I mean, she'll be fine. Like, yeah, he's just kind of sitting there. <laughs> like, why? Like, why would you help another person? <laughs> um. So when she goes to the bathroom, uh, one of the sisters who is blind and also has second sight tells her, you know, her child uh, who they have lost is is happy and laughing and she can see that she's good. And during that time, Julie Christie then kind of develops this um, this feeling of comfort from that, knowing, uh-huh. okay, you know, and, and it, it's almost, it, it aids her in the grieving process. Whereas when she tells Donald Sutherland's character, John, when she tells John how she feels, you know, he kind of just... He's caught. Co- he's a combination of annoyed with it, but then he's also happy because it has obviously transformed her mood in a way. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, after after the bathroom scene, the first thing that she, she does, of course, is you know, I think she just becomes overwhelmed with with kind of this, the relief. But after you know, she faints and passes out on the table, and then and we get that that all that. Olive oil and vinegar pouring all right. Oh, my, oh. I was like, my mother goes, "Well, I hope that was a one take." I, I know. I mean, the film is. I mean, the, they really do try in this film to, to create a lot of tactile sensation, you know, with with everything. And I think just having, you know, that image of the olive oil just pouring all over her is just like, oh, oh god, oh my god, and the glass and, and the, everything. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. but then she goes to the hospital, and you can see that you know she's relieved. And Donald Sutherland is, yeah, you know, like you said, he is he is this combination of like, yeah, he is he's, he's happy that she's happy, but also he, he's stuck and pragmatic enough to know that you know, the daughter is dead and not coming back. Even though, you know, as as the film kind of progresses, we we kind of learn well. It, it, it's it's said right in the opening scene, but as the film progresses, you know we learn that he is himself, a, maybe a little bit clairvoyant, but yes, but he doesn't know how to use it. But yeah, it, it's yeah, it's all he doesn't know. Yeah, he can't interpret it. It just yeah. it just, just happens, and he's, he's 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 got the gift, but but fuck the gift. Like he's yeah. got it, but he doesn't necessarily know how to utilize it and it's sort of an inconvenience for him in a lot of ways i mean he yeah he has it when you know he's in the the you know in the opening scene where he has the premonition about his daughter drowning and runs out and, and of course he can't save her and then has a premonition about you know the, the the figure in the raincoat and the premonition about the you know he goes down walking around venice and he's like I, i've been here before and he can't quite figure out why and Oof. God, I know. Oh, my God. It's just it's one of those movies, especially and I know you'll get this, but like upon uh, numerous watchings where you're it's a totally different movie than when you see it for the first time. Absolutely. Than when you see it for the fifth time. It's completely different. It is the type of film that kind of morphs in a lot of ways where. Sometimes I watch it and I see things from her perspective and sometimes I watch it and I see things strictly from his perspective. And I think that's just the genius of um, of Nick Rogue also is is that is that he has this ability to show um, these 
different sides of grief and how it's manifesting itself in these different ways. Yeah, um, Nick, Nick's a, a really interesting filmmaker because, you know, he started off as a as a cinematographer. Uh, you know, he, he shot this, you know, all these kind of amazing English films. And then Roger Corman, uh, you know, he, he shot Mask of the Red Death with Roger Corman. He shot uh, Fahrenheit 451 for Francois Truffaut and did second unit stuff for David Lean on Lawrence Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. And so, he, you know, great, you know, great sort of eye for, for composition and, you know, and, and imagery. Uh, and now this is, I think, his, is this his third motion, second motion picture as a direct? I believe so. Was Walkabout before this? I think, I think Walk, Walkabout was before this, but I can't remember if he, I think Man, uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth was after this. So oh, okay. This must have been his second. Oh, no, he did performance. So this was his third. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, uh, but and all those films, you know, he he plays around with, with time, imagery, and creating this sort of very abstract scenes. He's not a, a filmmaker that is passive. You cannot passively watch a Nick Rogue film. You have to sit down and invest. You know, if I would, to give a modern example, I guess, would be something like Cloud Atlas or something like that. It's like if you sit right. down with Cloud Atlas, it's like you have to watch Cloud Atlas. You, you have to experience it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, it runs it runs the gamut emotionally from yeah. this tragedy and the sadness and this trauma to, you know, this hope feeling in a lot of ways. And then it kind of like and then it and then it throws a wrench in there with the introduction in the story that there is a killer on the loose in venice yeah and it's it's all done very subtly very he, subtly he's like oh they're, they're passing by a police scene like, hey there's a killer there you know right homocida <laughs> and i didn't realize it wasn't until the most recent rewatch that i said oh there's the inspector that we're gonna see much later on in the exactly exactly gonna, you know and and just very sort of just random, almost as if these characters are sort of sprinkled into these two people's lives in the in just the, the smallest of ways, you know, because um, we see them and it's just a very like blink and you'll miss it kind of introduction with those. And so upon learning, obviously, that she believes her daughter is OK and they go to the I think do they at, following the hospital do they go to the church to look at it they go yeah they go to the church and they have the meeting with the uh bishop the, the bishop i always want to say cardinal but yeah, it's the, <laughs> yeah. i'm not catholic i'm, I'm not <laughs> no exactly i'm like i'm like i don't know i, don't, I mean i yeah we're episcopalians so i'm just like yeah <laughs> the bishop the bishop because he's in, you know apologies i, I don't mean i know <laughs> we 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 apologize uh in advance for any religious <laughs> faux pas um, we might be making during this episode but yeah and it's interesting that you know when they meet them julie christie's very well they they visit the person that they visit the church uh and light the candle for the daughter and then they go to the other church that donald sutherland's restoring and meet the uh the bishop right oh and they're running late and they're running late um so he has to, you know, apologize and all that. And Julie Christie, uh, you know, kisses his kisses ring. The ring. <laughs> they make a point of that. 
And it was just so funny because she's like, you're not. And he, she, he even says to her, he goes, you're not Catholic. Yeah. Like, and, and to be honest with you, that is a reference my boyfriend has made uh, before because he was raised Catholic. And so, you know, he would say something like, oh, you know, do you want me to kiss your ring kind of thing? And I, like I said, that woo over the head, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't have that. <laughs> Didn't either. So when she did that, I was like, "Oh, that's what that means." Okay. <laughs> but it, it it's interesting the reaction because Donald you know, Donald Sutherland is is looking at the the bishop with a great deal of skepticism and is like he doesn't care about the church. He's this is, you know, this is just a financial thing for him and just about right. the, the surface and he doesn't whatever and trying to make the church look pretty again yeah you know it's just it's a job for him and it's a you know a a, an assignment for the bishop to to make the church look nice again and Mm -hmm. uh and julie christie in the meantime is is very drawn to the 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 bishop and you know trying to be as respectful and polite and you know she just kind of waves away sutherland's more cynical uh, attitude towards it uh, and Very then much. i think they go back to the the hotel room and and then we are treated to probably the most the, the reason this movie the is the most famous most scene in the, <laughs> either the first most infamous scene or the second most infamous scene or the, in the second <laughs> um yeah so this is and here's the thing um uh, besides i mean anyone who's listening to the show knows i'm a huge pervert anyway but <laughs> But that's not why I like this scene. I this is a this is a sort of I would say more explicit love scene in a mainstream film than was seen at the time in the 70s. Um, And it is juxtaposed by what happens after the sex scene, which is them getting ready for dinner. And the lead up to the sex scene is very organic and very natural and i think that that's really why i respect the scene as much as i do is because it's not you know hurriedly fumbling with each other's clothes and you know no one's getting shoved up against a wall and you know so, random shit that they they show in love scenes now i guess it's just not like, and nor is it the the slow motion smoke filled uh silhouette yeah. Yeah, uh, no one's, you know, making out uh, under the someone, someone's gonna have sex in the shower, the which never happens. Going yeah. in the background, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's um, it's done in a very what starts off in a very playful sort of way, um, and then and then escalates uh into a a very you know not only explicit love scene, but also there's a feeling of them reconnecting, um. Mm-hmm. It, there's there's a feeling as we're watching this film that this perhaps is the first time that they've made love, uh, you know, after the death of their child. Yeah, it's never it's never explicitly said so. Nope. But it, it, you know, the way, you know, the the way that it's shot and the way it feels and you know, it, it's it's very, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful scene. I mean, there's just it is. It's a beautiful scene. There's a feeling of of um, relief in a lot of ways um and there's a feeling of just like it's just beautiful it, it really is a beautiful scene uh and then i love the fact that it's between you know when they show the them getting ready for dinner yeah. and there's 
there's this kind of amusement that they feel post-coital, which is relatable. You know, like she's putting on her dress and she's smoothing out her dress. So she feels she feels sexy. She feels beautiful. You know, there's a part where she's like nibbling on like the the case of her lipstick, you know, as if to say, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just got some. (laughs) And then uh, Donald Sutherland's kind of like. He's he's relaxed, right? He's relaxed. He's reclining on the bed. He's trying to figure out if he's on the right time zone because he's playing with the watch and the and the uh, and the alarm clock. You know, um, it's just cool as shit, man. And any any couple knows, man, you got to have sex and then go to dinner. Like, you know, because the other way around and you're just asking for drama. It's uncomfortable. It's just so uncomfortable. So they go to dinner. And okay, I need you to help me with this part because. The next scene, they are basically lost. Are they looking for the restaurant? I thought that they had pressed and they're on their way back to the hotel. And they're looking for the hotel. See? Yeah. I, okay. So, so we're both on the same, on the same, you know, on the same page with that. I knew that they were lost and I knew that they were looking for something specifically. I just didn't know if it was that they were looking for the hotel or they were looking for the restaurant, which is... I think I think we skipped... Yeah, but I think the film skips them, them enjoying uh, dinner at a restaurant and then... Right. You know, now, we're at, now they've had their meal and they're wandering back and things start to... Uh, and they start to get lost. Which is yeah. one of my favorite scenes in this movie. I mean, shit. It's like asking me to talk about Amadeus. You know, Amadeus is... 100% my favorite movie of all time, right? And I mean, I could just, the whole, you know, it was like, yeah, well, I hope you got three hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love this scene because it, like, encapsulates the feeling of just, I have no idea where we are. No. We're, we're trying to find it. And then all of a sudden, through all of this walking and sort of, uh, intermittent silence is this gasp yes it is jarring um because you almost don't know if it's a man or a woman yeah i i always i, I thought, thought it was, it was a man. man yeah but Maybe you not. you know i don't but you hear this gasp and you hear a scream and then you're like what the fuck was that you know, because we're 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 kind of, you know, it's darkly lit and you're lost and you can't figure out something. And then all of a sudden this happens and you're just like, oh, my God. And you've forgotten at this point, you know, post sex scene and, and, and post everything else. You've forgotten that there is indeed a killer on the loose in Venice. Yes, it's because. You know, this 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 is, you know, this film is not as interested in the kill i mean obviously by the end it's very, <laughs> at the but, end it's very but, interested but, it's, but, but this prior. is not like you know you're watching this is not like you're watching some dario argento giallo or you know this is thank you no this is this is very much a um you know right now it's a story about you know a, a broken couple trying to reconnect and um amidst this sort of odd sort of extrasensory uh world that seems to be surrounding them you know with, with you know the the two sisters that are having visions and and uh and now we have this you know and now and now we introduce the murder 
or the first murder or the gasp and Donald Sutherland sees the the first time has the he sees the the figure in a red uh another again another motif we did not discuss this when ah the ground yes. yeah she's wearing a red slicker boy i know i made look at this i made notes right you're sniffing I, stuff i know <laughs> and we're like you can't you have to see this movie like i'm just telling you i'm telling my audience right here you must see this film like you have to experience this film this is not a movie you put on and then you go and like do laundry this is a movie that you sit and you must pay attention to and you must watch i watch it with subtitles because i watch everything with subtitles these days and it's a totally different experience like it is an immersive experience so so the daughter is you know the daughter drowned wearing this red slicker uh and then we see uh again a small figure running wearing a red slicker and that catches the eye, you know, the eye of Donald Sutherland. And we don't know what it is. And she's off in the distance. The, the figure's off in the distance. And again, it's just, you know, shadows and labyrinth and you, you, the geometry that you're, you're just completely disoriented as to where you are and what's going on. Um, I and, love that, that you just said that, like, dis- disoriented. Yes. yes. Perfect. That's- that's, that's the that's great that's the aesthetic, the whole aesthetic of the film is essentially you know a disoriented experience that's the perfect way to describe it because grief is very disorienting yeah very much so yeah um so meanwhile john returns to work he has to work on the church and move statues and things like that she decides to go with the sisters to go have tea and yeah. experience well a seance of sorts a seance of sorts now okay so this is a theory and i'm wondering what your theory is on this but they're when they're having the seance the sister with the second sight starts to have what one would interpret at least my mother did as an orgasm and i my theory is that she was actually reliving the experience that John and Laura had had the night before. Oh, that's a very I I hadn't thought of it like that. I but yeah, that that would definitely uh you know, I I, I can't discount that. <laughs> that that sounds uh, like a, a good interpretation. But either way, it's it, she is definitely standing up and grabbing her breasts, her own breasts and you know passionately shouting uh in a very not in a very kind of um, passionate way that that definitely appears to be sexual yeah and then somebody else had a theory which is well you know you've never communicated with the dead before i mean how do you know what you'd act like (laughs) i was like you're not wrong Perhaps that is a very ecstasy-inducing experience. I don't know, but I guess my thought was that she was almost channeling as if she's kind of reliving all of the things that she's seeing uh, in their in their past and in their future. Like, as if she's seeing yeah. the dead, but that she's also seeing the things that they experienced, for, and then she's also seeing what's going to happen to John. Yeah, I mean, she, 
it, it's clear that when she has these these spells, these clairvoyant spells, that she, you know, even later on, uh, which is not uh, nearly as as sexual, but it's still equally passionate. That that and even even in the the bathroom scene um, early on when she first meets Julie Christie, you know, she she's very happy and overjoyed, and it's like I see your daughter, she's smiling. It's like she, you know, she's just thrilled to be experiencing this sort of extrasensory perception that's good i like that that's interesting right it's like maybe she just runs the gamut of emotions when that happens i don't don't, yeah but it's it's definitely (laughs) the seance is definitely uh sexually charged it's jarring because my mother my mother literally said because she was thank god my mom volunteers to watch these movies with me sometimes when i have to watch them this film with my parents for the show (laughs) well yeah i will say during the sex scene she was like i'm taking the dog out (laughs) out of it she was like i'm gonna take teddy for his walk and i was like all right i'm I'm like i'm sure it'll still be on when you get back yeah it's a long one it's not a short sex scene But when the woman started to grab her breasts and moan, my mother said, I could have gone my entire life without seeing that. <laughs> like, well, I'm I'm sorry. Anyway. So, so following the seance, she uh um Julie Christie's character Laura speaks with John about how she feels like there are messages coming from her daughter through uh this woman heather and um and donald sutherland's response whereas before was sort of mild annoyance and i'm sure probably confusion she is dead dead she is dead 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 you know my daughter is dead laura she does not come back with messages peeping from the grave and he yells at her and you can you can tell like she recoils like she's you know she's clearly wounded and then she says maybe i should take my pills again yeah and he's like yep they're in the desk like without even i mean there is no hesitation with that like he's like yep in the desk oh can i get you some water here (laughs) yes please take your pills (laughs) and i think it's important again this is such a dense film boy the the sisters, Julie Christie, when talking to the sisters, has a ta- moment where she talks about how Donald Sutherland got up out of the blue to try to rescue the daughter when she was drowning. And they say quite openly, is that maybe he's psychic too. It's a blessing and a curse to not to receive the message and not know how to deal with it. Oh, my God. I'm I. Yes, I glossed over that entire plot point. <laughs> oh, thank God for you, David. And then, uh, and then you we have this moment where Donald Trump is in complete denial of the fact that maybe he there is more out there than this sort of this is this is life as it is now, and mm-hmm. no, there is no afterlife, and she's dead. That's it. We need to move on. Oh my God! Yeah. So, meanwhile. The poor kid that they don't talk about ever. Um, he he has an accident at school, and they get a phone call in the middle of the night from the headmaster. From the headmaster, this is Mrs. Babbage, <laughs> calling from England. 
Johnny's had a terrible accident. He's okay. I think he's got a concussion. You should probably come and see him. You should. So, Laura... So, this is important. This is a very important plot point. Yes. Laura leaves uh, Venice to go to England. And I had to ask my mom. I was like, is that like an hour plane ride? Or... Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to be in, I, I visited Venice and I've been to England and oh. I can tell you it's, I mean, I've never flown directly, but my guess is it's probably about a three hour flight. Three hour flight. Okay. So this is not a, you know, hop, skip and adjust. It's not like me. It's not like me flying to Atlanta, you know, yeah. from Florida. It's, this is, this is a significant, you know, trip she has to take, uh, to go and check on, you know, the other kid, um, <laughs> at the school. During this time, John goes to work on the church and is involved in a scaffolding accident. Yes, he is. Which is bananas suspenseful. It's it's crazy because you can see that it's Donald Sutherland dangling off the, the scaffolding. And it, I, I you know, it, it, I, I, Looking at the uh, the trivia on this through the the IMDb, um, you know they had Vic Arm, you know Vic Armstrong, who does the stunts on the James Bond films, you know talked about watching this film and seeing Donald Sutherland's. I said, um, you realize that if you ever let go that the rig, the wire rig that you had supporting you, if you ever let go of that rope, it probably would have snapped the way you're twisting and turning. Like you did it all wrong. <laughs> oh my god it's it's so scary it is and it's terrifying gary yeah it's it's a crazy stunt and and oh my god <clears throat> and, then, and then there's a moment when donald sutherland gets rescued where there's like light clapping that happens in the background because the, <laughs> the crew the crew is like good for you guys i'm so glad that didn't that could have been ugly I was impressed that there's even a shot of like from Donald Sutherland POV of his like his feet dangling down. Oh, oh man, the poor cameraman had the hand (laughs) dangling from the scaffolding too in order to get that shot. Yep, fantastic. But but also a really beautiful shot. Yes, I mean the 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 artistic choices in this film for cinematography and just the the way that it is shot. Oh, is amazing anthony richmond's photography in this enough thank you yeah. thank you very much um well so after this happens uh donald Sutherland decides to walk it off you know he's, he's not gonna he's not gonna talk to anybody about it he's got a fucking bishop there he could literally have a deep heart-to-heart conversation about the thoughts he's having but he's like he's been having a walk. No, no i just need some air We'll go back to the mosaic later. Exactly. My emotional distress can be cured by physical exercise. Mm-hmm. So uh, so he does have a walk off. And um, during that time, another murder has occurred, or at least the body of someone, a girl, um, is being pulled out of the Venice Canal. Yeah. Uh, and so he knows that, obviously... This is happening around him. Um, he kind of gets he gets lost again where he's just wandering around. He finds um, a baby doll. Yeah, that's an extraordinary moment when Donald Sutherland, when they, they, they pulling the body out. 
and you actually have a flash like a, a fantastical kind of, it, it's there for about half a second of donald sutherland imagining himself falling from the scaffolding like letting go of the rope and falling oh man like I... imagining his own death uh, dude i missed that it yeah if you watch oh. that again it's like there's a quick second it's like he sees his own death as the body's being pulled out oh my god yeah no totally Woo! Yeah. missed it oh my god uh, I'm glad I had you on the show. You're clearly way more highbrow than I am. Like it's I'm, amazing. I'm just, I'm, I'm just too. Like, lots of notes. Lots <laughs> of notes. Yeah. You're my favorite kind of guest because guests that take notes is like, oh, so exciting. Like I just, I love that because it well, helps I... me so much. It's... Um. All right. So at this point, he then has a vision where. He believes he sees Laura yes. on the bow of a boat, or not gondola, but boat, uh, being flanked by the two sisters. Uh, and he calls out to her uh, and, and sort of, you know, beckons her and she just stays, she literally stares straight ahead. Yes. And so... He believes in his mind that Laura has been not necessarily taken against her will, but has been taken by these two sisters. Yeah, she did not go to England, that she has been abducted or persuaded or 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 has defected to the sisters. Exactly. Like so so he goes to the police station mm-hmm. and Gives a uh, description to the sketch artist of what the women look like and uh, and what his wife looks like. And he has a picture of his wife and goes to talk to the inspector. And it's important to point out that the inspector did not speak any English prior to this film yep. and was fed his lines phonetically, which lent to this sinister feeling of him just sort of saying these words but there's absolutely no feeling behind them or no understanding of what he's saying really oh it's so off-putting to listen (laughs) it really it really really is it's kind of like it's that feeling of i can't trust anyone in this town you know and i'm i'm telling you that my wife is missing and your reaction is just weird and creepy and there's a there's a great moment as he's talking to the inspector and describing the two women, the inspector stands up, goes to the window, looks out the window, and the two sisters are walking people and, and sees the two sisters and just kind of goes, yeah, you know, apropos of nothing. Okay, continue. <laughs> oh, yeah, yay. Uh, so at some point, the police department has someone following him because... Yes, murder squad. Murder squad. They have the murder squad following him around Venice. And he, at this point, oh, he goes to La Pension. Uh, he, he goes to the hotel that he believes um, the, the women, the women are staying right. at and finds that they have completely cleaned out of their hotel room. They're gone. Mm-hmm. And also the people who run the hotel also don't speak English. Nope. 
So it's this, and he's trying very hard. Like he has like this broken Italian and he's trying very hard to like give them little Italian phrases that Mm -hmm. might, you know, let them know what he's trying to find, what he's looking for. And it lends to the feeling of paranoia. It lends to the feeling of being lost. And he calls England uh, to check on that poor kid, Johnny. Uh, which, by the way, is their biological son. Okay, so he (laughs) calls England to check on his kid. He's just as important as the daughter. Right. Right. Yes, just a note. Kid, totally fine. Anyway, so he calls them, and the headmistress, uh, Mrs. Babbage, uh, says, do you want to talk to your wife? And he's like, qu'est-ce que And they say, you know, here, have the phone. And so he realizes that Laura has been in England this entire time. Yeah. And he's it, it it's my mom asked this. She said, why are they talking over each other? And I said, because they're having two different conversations. You know, she's having the conversation of everything's fine. I'm coming back. Let's have a late dinner. Uh, Johnny might have a concussion. Who gives a fuck? I'm coming back. Right. His conversation is. But you were here. But I thought you were here. here. I saw you. I don't know what I don't understand. I mean, he, he they're having these two conversations and it's just it's beautiful to watch. It's a master class in acting. Yeah, it really is. And and just in terms of the, you know, the overlapping editing and, and, and mm, mm. the fact that, that both of them, you know, compositionally are kind of off the side. It's like they're not there's just there's mm. such a disconnect between what's the two of them are. You know, are, are failing to communicate. And 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 also, I and I just totally came up with this, but it's also how they're dealing with their grief. You know what You're I mean? Like she so. she is very like here's this, and I'm telling you this, and these are the facts, right? And I'm gonna see you later, and I'm reassuring you. I'm reassuring you that I'm coming home or I'm coming back to Venice. We will have dinner, and he is lost in confusion. It's funny. It's a, it's almost an inverse of where we were an hour ago in the film. Yes. Thank you. Man, this is a good episode. <laughs> I'm leaving that in, too. I am. I'm like, you know what? That's We should know that I'm completely just delighted by this episode. So because John has gone to the police station and reported these two sisters, the cops have picked one of them up or both of them up. Or one of both of them, uh, right? No, no, no. I, I uh... I think that at one point they had both of them, but the other uh, the they only had the blind one there now, and the other sister was at the British consulate. British consulate, British consulate. Yes. So, so John realizes they're fucked up. He realizes that he has had them picked up for no apparent reason, and he feels terrible. So he tells the one sister. Uh, the one with second sight, he says, you know, I, I will walk you back to your hotel. I apologize. This was on me. You know, I thought one thing and this right. And so they're walking back to the hotel. And I like this part. I know it's so it's such a tiny little thing. But when the kitty cats, you know, the kitty cats are there and she's like, yeah. I've tried to keep them, you know, and, and he goes, well, they're they're What did he say? They're wild here. That's right. Yes. I think that, yeah. He says, oh, well, he's like, they're wild here. And it's this, um, it's this 
this lovely moment, this like endearing moment between those two characters who have, you know, before this, obviously he thought, you know, you, you crazy bitch <laughs> stole my wife, you know? <laughs> yeah. So he walks back to the hotel. When he leaves, the one sister starts to have a vision. Yep. Bring him back. Bring him back. And that vision is that something is going to happen to John. She says, fetch him back. Fetch him back. Let him not go. Fetch him back. And the other sister runs to try to find John. But by that time, John's long gone. And John, at this point, has now caught a glimpse of the figure in red. And has decided to pursue the figure in red. Meanwhile, Julie Christie has arrived back in Venice. She's arrived. um, uh, She's back at the hotel room with the sisters. She's at the hotel room with the sisters. But prior to that, she gets picked up by a gondola operator. Yeah, I don't know what they're called. Anyway, but she gets gets picked up by the gondola operator and the gondola operator says, I need to take you where your husband is. Oh, yes, that's right. And and says, your husband is at the police station, which, of course, is just bananas to her. She's like, what what happened while I was gone? You know, I was gone. I was gone a day caring for my child that I don't care about. And um, (laughs) yeah, so so she she's kind of confused. She goes to the police station. The police station tells her, oh, yeah, well, he took the he took the ladies home to their new hotel. Here's the information. So she goes to the hotel. When she goes to the hotel, the sisters are trying to tell her, you need to find him. You need to find him. You need to fetch him. Something Something's wrong. Something's going to happen. So John has taken to pursuing the figure in red. You know, he sees them. Uh, you know, get on one of the gondolas, jump off the gondola, you know, um, he's pursuing them and then he pursues them. This is, this is absolute brilliance uh, cinematography wise. He pursues the figure into what looks like a, almost a dilapidated, dilapidated, like a, like a church or a tower of some kind. What is it? I think well, I think it's just an apartment building, but it's been run down. Run down apartment building. Okay, and so he and, closes the gates to the courtyard. Yes, he closes the gates to the courtyard and locks it. I know, <laughs> I, I dude. I I was like moments where you're like, oh, bro, wow. Okay, so he locks the gates and is pursuing this figure, and all of a sudden, there is this unbelievable fog and smoke that fills that area that space is just uh, intruded into over see thank you yes yes (laughs) it gets it gets real hammery it gets real (laughs) hammer film very quickly and it's almost like he's stepped into hell yeah it it reminds me it very fulci Yep, 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 like, like the beyond. Mm-hmm. The beyond, thank you. Yes, it reminds me very much of the beyond. So he's, you know, he's walking and he's still pursuing this this, this character. And oh, God, this scene. Okay, so he goes and he finds this person in red and they're crying. They have their back turned to the camera and they are crying in a corner. And he's approaching them and he says, it's okay, don't be scared. I'm a friend, yeah. you know, um, as if he's almost like 
it's his second chance to save his daughter. Or this is a manifestation of his daughter. You know, he's there to be comforting. And oh boy, howdy. No one has ever in the history of cinema been more wrong about a character. Yeah, this red stay stay away from the figure in red right it's like dude red danger hello okay so he um he approaches the figure in red and the figure turns around and it is not his daughter or a manifestation as such it is a i'm trying to be politically correct here it is a dwarf it is a middle-aged dwarf it is a middle-aged female dwarf with a wizened face yes and she looks at him and he kind of for well, I mean, i'd be freaked out if that came near me um he he sort of looks at her and then goes no like as if to say like this is i'm sorry i made a mistake and um and, and, and she's she, shaking her head she no shakes her head as if to say bitch we warned you we told you to leave Venice. We told you not to pursue this. We told you that if you didn't face your grief, your grief was going to face you. And she pulls out a straight razor and slashes him in the femoral artery. Yeah. And, uh, and as he goes down, he's... You know, bleeding and seizing, spasming. spasming. He, his, um, his foot. Oh God, the we foot kicks the glass in front of him, and the blood just drips down the wall. Yeah. And as he's having this moment, he realizes he flashes. He basically has the flash of everything that he's experienced up to this point. Yeah, as your life flashes before you, it's your life flashes before you and realizes that, you know, when he saw her standing on the boat with the two women, he was actually seeing his own funeral. So the movie ends, you know, right? Mine blown. (laughs) (laughs) so wow yeah just fucking what just it's just it's it's wild man i know we had to follow it up with like a northern exposure episode because my mother was just like that was just so terrible oh i don't blame i mean it's it's that film dark had your had your your mom seen the film before she's very funny because she will claim that she has seen something and then completely forget what she watched. Oh, yeah. My so, yeah. so she may have seen this, but she doesn't have the kind of, you know, photographic memory I do or or the, you know, weird, you know, demented Teletubby. I'm going to watch this a billion times over and over and over and over and over again thing that I have going on. So most likely she had probably seen it once and totally forgotten about it. That, that makes sense. Which, yeah, I can't even imagine forgetting about this movie. Like, I can't imagine forgetting about that ending, you know, and knowing it's like, oh, is this the one where Donna Sutherland dies? You know, <laughs> yes, mom, it is. Um, 
So what do you know about the background, the behind the scenes? Do you know, do you have any like fun facts about it or anything that you've taken notes on? I mean, I know that the, we, we've talked about the sex scene and the big rumor is that Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie really made love during the sex scene, which has been debunked by several people, everyone involved. Right. Um, yeah. His, I tell he, you from a, a filmmaking standpoint, uh, there there are five people in the room, the two actors, uh, the director, Nicholas Rogue, Anthony Richmond, the, the cinematographer, and one person to pull focus who, who, according to the rumor, was so nervous that he was pulling focus the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so I, I guess, was it the producer or one of the producers who started the rumor who had heard... And he wrote about it in his book, like he wrote about. I think it was just, it, it, A, it's just everybody was, had never seen a, a sex scene like that at the time. And two, uh, Julie Christie at the time was in a relationship with Warren, Warren Beatty, Beatty, who was more than willing to entertain that kind of paranoid, jealous. Um, yeah. Yeah. Delusion. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, I think it's just, it's one of those just urban legend, you know, at the, yeah, urban legend. At, at the time, you know, things like that had, 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 had happened. I mean, you know, was, I think Marty Scorsese had filmed Boxcar Bertha at that point, which really did have a, a scene like that. Actual unsimulated sex. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't unheard of, but, you know, it, it, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie are, are both two actors that have, years and years and years of professional experience between them and I'm, you know, I... yeah yeah and uh and then and, and, and to donald sutherland's credit apparently he's like 90 percent wiener so <laughs> that's probably what happened is that somebody saw like a like a like a like a shot and was like well his dick's gotta be in there when in fact it's just a, he just has a huge penis it's a very well-known fact in hollywood donald sutherland I, I, big penis he, 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 you, you, I didn't know that about him, but yeah. that's, I mean, that makes sense. So maybe that that's what happened. Um, but yes, uh, Donald Sutherland was actually on Inside the Actors Studio and, of course, was asked about that, was asked about that scene, you know, James Lipton, perv. And um, he basically said that sex scene was the first thing that we shot. It was shot at seven yeah. o'clock in the morning. They had just met and there are cameras going the entire time and they're very loud and there was wood paneling so the sound was reverberating off of it and there's meanwhile nicholas rogue is yelling you know lick her nipple go down on her you know weird <laughs> shit off to the yeah. side so there's no 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 oh it is a film and they are acting. um but um let me see what other things the um the house that they are in the in the very beginning of the film mm -hmm. belonged to the actor that played the headmaster of the school. <gasps> really? I read that it belonged to someone and I didn't make that connection. Okay, that's yeah. great. Oh wow. So oh, they, I think they uh, they lived there. Uh, from what I understand, the, the people of Venice were very unhappy, or at least you know. The, the city officials of Venice were not very happy with the film in terms of oh. being, Venice being in a positive light. Nope. 
nope. Let's see. Falling into the water. Uh, mm. no, nobody, nobody cares about the aesthetics. There's a killer on the loose. We have a shitty police department. Um, oh, and yes, we're closing down the hotel for the winter. Get the fuck out of my hotel. And no, and we are we closed. Have... <laughs> yes, we are closed. That... Mister Baxter, we are closed. Good I, I, so true story. I, I was in Venice. Uh. Well, it's, I was in Italy and I was only in Venice for a day just visiting, but I was in Italy. Uh, one of the shows that I worked on was Master of None um, in the second season. And we were in Italy for three weeks while they were shooting uh, the first two episodes. Everything closes in Italy at weird hours. It's way, it's like we, we're going to close between three and seven, and then we'll be open from seven till 10, and then we're closed. But, Wow, there's like strange. Everything is kind of weird hours. So, oh my goodness, um, that's 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 interesting. And I guess now, do you speak other languages besides English? Smattering of French. That's about it. Me too. That's so yeah. funny. Yeah, I know. I'm the only. I'm the only idiot in Florida who, in high school, decided oh, I'll take French. It's like I, Spanish. I'll never need that. My dad spoke French, so I kind of it was kind of his influence, and it was like, all right. I'll learn some French. And, yeah, and, so I, I get to communicate with the French Canadians who come down to visit Florida. That's, okay. wow. that's the uh, that's that's the extent of my friends. Je yep. mange. <laughs> I eat, you eat. Okay. Um. So, oh, I know it won a BAFTA for Best Cinematography, and rightly so. Yes. Um. The so. Pino DiNaggio. I was about to bring him up. Because we yeah. gotta we gotta talk we about this score. Pino. Oh my god, we gotta talk this, about this, this score. Beautiful, beautiful. Wow. Um did did you know and I didn't know this that Pino DiNaggio was actually known for having an Italian version of You Don't Have to Say You Love Me? The Dusty I, Springfield song? I did not know that. Like he wrote that song and recorded it in Italian. And then she, you know, took it and and made it her English version or whatever. But that that's what he was actually known for. And that the casting director saw him on one of the water buses in um in Italy and was like, that's a sign. He needs to score this movie, even though Pino Donaggio oh, wow. had never scored a film before. I knew I knew this was his first film. Um, yeah. And because of this film, you know, he got him noticed in Hollywood. You know, I know that De Palma picked him up to replace uh, Bernard Herman when he unexpectedly passed away uh, during an obsession that he was working on, I think. Oh, wow. Uh, so and then that started the relationship between he and De Palma. And, you know, Pino's been a, a composer ever since. So that's uh, yeah, I, I know but, that he became De Palma's main guy. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's all because of this film, though, that, that you know, everyone kind of. And uh, I, when I watched this with my boyfriend for the first time, or I was trying to convince him to watch it, his response when I when I was trying to like tell him about the movie, he goes, "Well, I don't want to see Doctor Loomis have sex." And it became very evident that my boyfriend believed that Donald Pleasance and Donald Sutherland were just interchangeable. Jesus, sorry, I'm sorry. Uh... I'm sure your boyfriend's a perfectly lovely. Oh no, he's wonderful, and he just said I can hear you. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't want to see. 
I don't want to see Donald Pleasance have sex. And I was like, honey, Donald Sutherland, not Donald Pleasance. And by the way, I would watch both. So so you're not doing Wake and Fright anytime soon. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm on board with both of the, uh, both of the Donalds. Okay. Um, but, uh, but when he finally watched it with me, he really, really enjoyed it. And that's good. He likes things that are atmospheric and he likes artsy things. And, and he likes, you know, like he likes Lynch. We got into Twin this Peaks together. Very, oh, yeah. I mean, you can see how much this has influenced David Lynch and probably Mark Frost as well for, you know, Twin Peaks. And oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it, yeah, this is, I mean, this is one of the most influential films ever made. I mean, it, Absolutely. Um, I think we said, well, we didn't really say, but the uh, short story came out in 1971. This film was released in 1973. I haven't discussed the most important thing yet. Well, let's see. We we did the sex scene. We did this song. We did. What are we missing? What did we think about Donald Sutherland's wig? Oh, what? Okay. (laughs) Wait. Mind blown. I am today years old. When I am learning that Donald Sutherland wore a wig, are you? They, that was not a natural perm. He was wearing a, a toupee thing, hair to, oh. to make it all poofy and curly. And are you serious? I totally thought. Okay, hold on. Oh, all right, I, so, this thing looks so strange on him. Invasion it, of the it, Body Snatchers. Like well, okay, yes, it was very whoish. It was, it was very <laughs> Doctor Whoish. But that's a good question, though. In um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, did he not? He didn't have the curls. The curls were not a thing. You're right. He did have the curls in, in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, that, maybe that was another. And week. then Animal House, he had sort of a sort of a half mullet situation going mm-hmm. on. But I, um, I know he's definitely wearing a toupee or something <gasps> that's in this film. Oh my god! Damn. Never- <laughs> That's awful. Wow. Way to be a boner killer, David. I'm sorry. Damn. All right. Donald Sutherland off the list. (laughs) Terrible. Terrible. Oh, my God. All right. Do you have anything that you would like to plug or anything? You know, I I think we, you and I met through Sarah's uh, Silver Gratitudes. Yes, we did. Oh, I think we need to give Sarah a plug. Oh, totally. Totally. If you are looking for a fabulous recovery podcast, um, Sarah's recovery podcast, Sober Gratitudes, is fantastic. I've been on it before. Lots of our friends have been on it before. Um, She creates a wonderful, joyful environment. She shares in a very raw and beautiful way. And I absolutely adore her. And she has given manic movie monday a plug on her show as well so yeah man we're all i'm all about the i am i am all about supporting other people's podcasts so yes please check that out it is on all platforms and she's amazing 